everyone, this is Lila Proença and this is The Honest by Vera Head. Every episode, I get to pick the brains of brilliant, inspiring and honest guests about their lives, passions and everything and anything we want to discuss. We use the veterinary world just as an excuse to talk to fascinating people. Today, I had with me Cristina Lopez. Cristina is the CEO and co-founder of The One Health Company, the leader in precision medicine for dogs with cancer. Cristina has been recognized as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum at Davos for her pioneering efforts in both deal-making and women's health. She was advisory board director for International Planned Parenthood, the Western Hemisphere, and participated in the United Nations Commission for the Status of Women. With that background, talking about feminism, equality, social justice, and entrepreneurship was easy, natural, and a true privilege. We need to build a bridge, not a wall. That was the essence of today's podcast. I am sure Christina Brilliance will certainly inspire you. With that, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our The Honest by Vera Head podcast. Today, I have with me Christina Lopez. Christina, it's also a fellow Brazilian. So two Brazilians in the house today. However, we are very apart today. Um, she's in Palo Alto. I'm in Los Angeles. We are both, um, it's, the, it's the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic. So we are all in, under quarantine, uh, recording this from home. I am in my closet. Christina is in her garage. So we are <laughs> being creative as Brazilians are. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much. It's um, I'm so excited to be here and... You know, it really is a new normal, and the new normal is for some time. I don't think it's just, oh, it's a pandemic, and then, oh, back to normal. And I think it's especially important that the voices and, you know, we really, like, embrace new tools and new ways to disseminate information always, but even more now. Yeah. Because conferences and, you know, are you going to go to a packed place full of people? I Not know. really, right? I know. So so this this is an important endeavor, more important than ever. It is. It is. And we were just talking before we started the podcast about we, we both have kids. You have two kids, right? You have two, two. daughters? Yeah, daughters. Well, how, what are the ages? Uh, four and six. Uh, five, and, five and six, really. Oh, so they're little, little. <gasps> yeah. Oh, that's even harder. So I have a 10 and a 12. So it's it's good in a sense that I, we, they can do their activities sometimes and not need us to be like constantly supervising. But in your case, like especially the four-year-old, like you need to be constantly <laughs> making sure they are not <laughs> threatening their own lives. So Yeah, no, it's been a real challenge. At first I embraced it. I loved it. I was like, oh, you know, I have some time. And then I realized, oh, I still have to work and the show goes on and yeah. they're home and yeah like she turned the living room into a jungle gym you know oh, and wow. uh, so <laughs> you know so basically it's a kind of crazy um but I think this is a reset you know I think the world thinking from a like even planetary point of view there's a threshold that was hit Some something I think we hit something right 
And, That's right. you know, I went just a little bit about myself. I went to graduate school at a school of international and, and public affairs at Columbia mm-hmm. University. And I actually uh, studied under Jeff Sachs, who, you know, this is over 10 years ago, and we were mapping and he had just founded the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And he just launched uh, the Millennium Goals at the UN. And he really, I remember, this is more than 10 years ago. This is 2005. Um, Mm -hmm. So I remember in the class, we were articulating the risks. Like we talked a lot about the thresholds. And pandemic was up there already. We were already like talking about that, talking about, you know, when do we hit those thresholds in in the the bio world we live in that we might not recover from, you know, and he was thinking of the overfishing in, um, you know, the North Atlantic, like near Nova Scotia, that they overfished so much there were no fish anymore. You know, they the they they harvested more than the reproductive wow. rate, but it's not they meant to, right? Obviously, like it's like yeah. the livelihood, but it's just those yeah. thresholds are are balanced. And then, you know, the Easter Island, um, you know, where they over like population decline. Mm-hmm. Yet these you know big uh, monuments, so a lot of mystery there. But some theories around Malthusian population traps, mm-hmm. et cetera. But in that, the pandemic was one of the things we talked about, actually, 100%. Uh, there had already... It is, it, it, no, I, I was going to say, like, I couldn't agree more. It's definitely a reset. And I know everybody's talking about it and everybody's thinking about it. But uh, you seem to be a fast-paced person and a person that's doing 10,000 things at the same time. And I'm a great multitasker and a, an entrepreneur, um, a CEO of your own company, a creator. And... I am trying to embrace what the world is trying to teach me. I am trying to slow down, but it's hard. I don't know how. Like, do you imagine you, like, I don't know. I don't know your day. Maybe you tell me, but having just one important thing per day, that's my goal. And I can't do it. That I have so many tasks to do in one day, <laughs> but that's not normal, right? How is it for you? Oh my God. No. Yeah. I think it's doing more with less, actually. Maybe I should be doing yes. less with less, but no, I think it's doing more with less. I um, know. Less support, know. less less certainty. Um, I think it's being savvy. Um, you know, they're the good thing, and we're Brazilian, so we mm-hmm. maybe have a resourceful. Yeah. Which is that, you know, when I hear now very establishment folks speak about, you know, this health crisis turning into a financial crisis, mm-hmm. how they talk about it makes me think of Brazil, you know, and dealing with yeah. it becomes all about the now, like nobody can f- plan ahead. And I'm like, oh, wow. Um, and yeah, that's a little too it familiar. Is. I don't know how I feel about this uh, yeah. in the sense that, you know, we want a healthy society with healthy institutions. And when you get too much into the now and long term planning goes out the window entirely, yeah. um, it's tough. It's tough. And you mm-hmm. and you see the ramifications in the psyche of people you know, over a long time. It is, and it's already happening, I think. And I, I yes, the world was, is not going to go back to it, to what it was before, and it's going to take some adapting to it. But, Christina, you are the CEO and, and the co-founder of um, the One Health company, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And then you guys are leading in um, uh, precision medicine for dogs with cancer. And I think part of your work, too, I guess it couldn't, you know, 
maybe you saw the future, but everything is done. It seems like everything is done remotely, right? The owners can have access to you guys uh, remotely. You can get the samples remotely and you can do a lot of that remotely. I'm sure you need to have a basis and a lab or something of some sort. But Yeah, yeah. So we can, so I mean, that's a concept I think that we're entering this doing more with less. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, when we think, you know, our key partners are the clinicians at the clinic, at your clinic, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have some superstars there we love, absolutely love. Um, Dr. Trina Hazard. Yeah. yeah, that's how we met, that's right? That's how we met. She Trina, is, yeah, um, she's amazing. She's fantastic. She's a real leader, know. you know, like really yeah. the future. So, you know, yeah. we have those kind of folks as partners. We're partnering right now with 200 of those kind of hospitals, you know, the best hospitals in the United States. Um, and basically, we're bringing molecular diagnostics to the oncology mm -hmm. story. The nice thing there is we do not need to rebiopsy or do any funky stuff with mm -hmm. fresh tissue or any of that. No, we designed it for clinical application, right? Like we want access and scale. So it's basically the, the tissue that, you know, for the histopath, for the diagnosis of mm -hmm. cancer, we can reuse mm -hmm. that. How about that? And the tissue is already somewhere at some one of these labs. The labs are open, you know, the yeah. IDEXs of the world. Yeah. Right. So, um, so it's basically, there's not extra anything. And then the nice thing is we analyze the tissue, uh, looking at the DNA mutations of the tumor. That's what we mm -hmm. do. Um, from the genomics lens of cancer. And we're looking, you know, what information can we find from that specific patient, from that specific tumor that might, you know, give us more insight, more important biological information so that we can then think of the therapeutic approach with and more... And tailor it, right? Yeah, and tailor it, right? Yeah. I mean, sadly, uh, you know, every uh, patient is unique and every cancer is yeah. unique. I mean, it just... I, yeah, every cancer is a cancer, yeah. So for the lay person, they are basically, if they have a patch that has a tumor, um, you know, a mass, and they, they go to their uh, general practitioners, their veterinarian, the veterinarian usually will call it a sample, a biopsy, a little piece of that tissue, and they will send it to the lab. And then with that same tissue is what you guys can use to uh, find out all the genomic information, tailored treatment, and you work together with their um, primary clinician. So for the client and for the clinician, is very, um, it's a very, it's very comfortable. Like it's not like they need to do anything right, above and beyond. Right, right. It's what no, they're already doing. It's basically what they're already doing. Right. We don't need like um, some sophisticated diagnostics are really cool, but the thing is, you mm -hmm. need the tissue to be handled in very yeah. particular ways, and it's very sensitive. If you mess it up, it's mm -hmm. like a waste. And biological information is so valuable that like mm -hmm. you just can't take that chance so yeah we're able to do that and then we give a beautiful report back uh to the mm -hmm. clinician who then discusses it with the family and um what we're bringing in we're looking for what's actionable right so not just the important biomarker information of that that cancer but what can mm -hmm. we do you what know what tools done. what tools and we have brought to the space uh, another eight therapies, targeted therapies that we partner with a with a pharmacy that dispenses it, mm -hmm. right? And uh, mm -hmm. and again, these are pills, actually, unlike the traditional uh, injectable chemo. Injectable. Um, and so they can be shipped to the home, 
the uh, side effect profile. So convenient. So, yeah. so it, I mean, we didn't like, pl yeah. we planned it Spanish, for... Especially now. like that, <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Where folks need more tools and they need tools yeah. that preserve PP&E, that lower, you know, social distancing. And uh, and we expect some of these trends to really continue, as we were saying. Um, so for yeah, us... Yeah, this is genius. It's brilliant. It's, uh, as uh, my son described VetAhead, my company, he described, you make veterinarians better than they are. So I think you guys are doing the same thing. You're making it better than... They already are. Oh, you helping we, the clinicians be better and help the patients. And we're here. Uh, oh, I'll say even concept. how we think of it. We're here to superpower the clinician. Yeah. And actually, <laughs> there you go. superpower. So I want to be like for you know, in our yeah. product, our key product is called mm -hmm. Phytocure. Um, it's mm -hmm. we want that to be you know a, a real um, a real support, a real next set of tools. Mm -hmm. And for us to be really there, like to to help, you know, it's really in service of. Otherwise, yeah. there's no meaning in what we do. It, it's it's you know, we're not in some ivory tower somewhere, like mm -hmm. we are for the masses and Pioneers, for the clinician, yeah, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah. and then the data we capture, right, which is this like cancer journey of each patient. It's um, we need also the partnership with the veterinarian that you know the oncologist because they have the medical records they're seeing a lot yeah. so that's really important yeah. to build this clinical yeah genomic. the more you learn about it the more you can help yeah so it's yeah really important. so there we go yeah, and data. that's why we're partly in silicon valley is the data we do a feedback loop so again it's out that concept of doing more with less right so yeah we see exceptional responders we can go back to see oh what about that dog you know what you know even all the way from the breed the phenotypical information but also genetically what did we see going on there mm -hmm. and what was the treatment and you know we start to like so at volume at connect high numbers, the dots yeah. yeah yeah so this is this analyze is the it. data and collect yeah that's it that's it is in data science right there but christina you also have been recognized as a young global leader <laughs> by the world economic forum at davis this is huge and that was uh, for pioneering efforts in both deal making and women's health yeah yeah. And you also were the director of the Cer Cerber Cerberus, Cerberus, Capital. Cerberus Capital, 30 a 30, 30 billion asset under management fund, yeah. like a lot, a lot. You were also the advisory board in the advisory board director for the International Planned Parenthood, and I definitely want to talk to you about that the western on the western hemisphere. And you also participated in the United Nations Commission for the Status of Women and lecture at Columbia University. And you were also honored at Rising Talent for the by the Women's Forum in 2014. So, like, a huge, accomplished, successful women, female entrepreneur, um, and literally, like, getting there and helping other women um, sharing that. How did that journey go from, um, you have a, a bachelor's degree from Massachusetts, right? Yeah. University of Massachusetts. And yeah. then you did a master's, a master's in international affairs in yeah. Columbia. Mm -hmm. And then a doctoral uh, coursework in ethics at Princeton University. And then how did you, how did it all happen? How did you go <laughs> to those venues and now tying it together with your, your company? So, um, 
So first of all, it um, might sound as if I woke up and planned it, but like was not very planned. You know, I know <laughs> no, some it people. Didn't. I know some people <laughs> I was, are like. I was expecting a recipe. No, <laughs> no. So I know Aww. some people are like you know, especially for example in the in the veterinary space are like, I'm three years old, I'm gonna be a vet. You know, ten years old, I'm gonna be a vet. Yeah. like it's very yeah. determined. So no, I didn't really. Um, I I really. I think, you know, part of the big influences, so I'm a mix. So my mom is from Dublin. My dad's from Brazil. They met in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. I was born in the mountains of Rio. And right there, I already didn't fit because my mother, you know, she spoke with an accent and, you know, nothing was very like linear just from the start. Like I don't know what that there. means to speak with an accent. I have no <laughs> idea what that entails. Right. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. And so there were definitely not that many foreigners. So it was already like, oh, my mom is a foreign one, you know, so it was a little mm-hmm. unusual. And then, you know, Brazil was kind of in collapse, um, you know, in the mm-hmm. 80s was really like financial collapse, possibly even failed state. So I left with my mom and my sister to come to the United States. So we did come actually, her as a single mom, uh, you know, with really limited resources. And we went, uh, luckily to Massachusetts, which had, you know, a lot of at the time, I don't know if they still do social safety nets. So they, you know, we got some help, but it was tough. We moved to a very affluent place, but we were literally, I think, the poorest in the place. I mean, the and poorest. what was the connection with the United States? Um, so my parents had met in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, my dad had gone to MIT and, you know, so like my mom had studied in around the Boston area also. So they mm-hmm. came from this kind of uh, intellectual, there was, you know, the first actually Background. Brazilians coming to MIT and Harvard to really study. Oh, wow. They were often even sponsored by Kennedy and the United States government. Um, so, so there was this openness, but Brazil was probably like a minority, but they was the first, mm-hmm. you know, there were Mm -hmm. I think that went to Chicago and all of that and came back and and were some of the thinkers of planning Brazil. So my dad was Mm -hmm. definitely part of that story, more on the physics and mechanical engineering side. Um, And he and then, you know, once he married my mom, the idea was to go back to Brazil. And he was very nationalistic in the sense of like, I want to help Brazil. Like we have that mission, you know, so I back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I have to help Brazil. And Mm -hmm. so he was a coordinator of planning in the um, or transport, like many government roles. Uh, He was the head of engineering for Puki with good university in Rio. Yeah, it's one of the best, yeah. And he also became entrepreneur in in real estate stuff. So he did a bunch of... So he was already a very... um, you know, I did some ethics work. So like there's a, mm-hmm. a lot of it comes from ancient Greece, the pe- frameworks. Mm-hmm. And there's a word called atopos, which is um, what they would call Socrates, which is unclassifiable. It's like mm. not someone who fits in a box. You can, I like that. <laughs> yeah, unclassifiable. You can label it. I like it. Yeah, yeah that's What it. is the word again? Atopos. I don't know if I'm saying it right because it's like a Greek word, so I probably am like click killing it. Uh, but that's how I always call it. It's <laughs> I will atopos. fact check that. Yeah, so that's a very like Socratic principle, actually, um, in the sense of who he was, and because so- that's the stuff I was studying uh, a lot about. You know the like Western frameworks. And so my dad was already very unusual, frankly. You know, mm-hmm. he studied quantum physics, so. He was already wow. out there. And That's he came awesome. from a bit unusual family because his great uncle had studied with Einstein. 
and you know math in brazil is not oh, like oh wow yeah yeah so math in brazil already is not like you know i think in the pisa yeah. international tests it's like yeah. for middle income countries may might be the worst <laughs> for oh, for wow. the income so, yeah yeah so it's very unusual we don't know where this fascination with um with academics actually was very strong all over my fam- my dad's family um it's incredible yeah so he didn't fit you know in brazil there's not so uh-huh. much of that drive it's a small mm-hmm. group that really yeah and then my mom was uh, was foreign and unusual in that sense you know red hair freckles so um so there i was already born kind of coming from a different very different paradigm Background. they were very older parents like in their 40s which in that time was like they were literally grandparents Unheard in my school yeah. the same age no really I'm like here palo oh, wow. totally normal but yeah yeah they had uh-huh. grandparents <laughs> the same age so there was just like nothing fit you know i didn't know how to explain my family's never went on a picnic really together so anyways i'm going on but uh, the idea is just very unusual no i love that yeah very unusual perspective and then coming but we did have some uh let's say you know financial means like I mean major financial means when I was you know little in Brazil and that my dad had actually pretty much built on his own and then once we went to the United States and as Brazil kind of collapsed um you know we didn't have any so I went from kind of a situation of unusualness having yeah um multi-languages in the house um but privilege to oh my god I'm like an immigrant with a single mother we have no power we have no money and I became aware of that actually that's the thing How old were you when you came? Like uh we there was some traveling going on but maybe let's say 10. Oh, wow. I was aware. I was aware that we were uh powerless and without money. I was aware. So that was Do you weird... remember what made you like do you did you have an experience or something that kind Oh my god, like all the time because you? it was this town called Newton, Massachusetts and it's like uh the M symbol is like the Newton soccer mom and mm-hmm. driving and my mother we didn't have a car. So like we were that poor and like to be in a suburb like that that is mm-hmm. entirely on a car to not have one was like I mean my mother could barely go to my school because it had to be the school bus that took you and if she couldn't mm-hmm. you know like how she's going to go on a school bus so so it was yes. really um yeah so she barely went Challenging. Uh, so it was re- so I mean it was like an everyday rub it in your face you know what I mean like because it was so about the mom in the car you know uh and then <laughs> I don't have that even so it was like oh my god and you know and because I had I come also from you know certain like academic um let's say esteem right my dad mm-hmm. had been taught You know, he learned economics from uh, I think Paul Samuelson who like invented some of the economics out of Chicago. Like I don't know, maybe won a Nobel Prize. I don't know. You know, but like he came mm-hmm. he was so well educated that um and my mother too even from her side in Ireland. So so I had like kind of ambition but major mm-hmm. restraints um and w- I felt always attention. Like I wasn't like oh, you know, like no, and yeah. I worked, I worked, I made money. Uh-huh. Like uh-huh. right away, I babysat, and it mattered to me that 
Like, that was how I would have pocket money. Like, otherwise I yes. wouldn't, you know? So, like, yes. again, in a place where, you know, the kids go to the mom, oh, can I have some money to go to the yeah. movies? And the mom would give 20, and then she would ask the dad, <laughs> oh, and they got another 20. And me, like, I just had to work for that at $2 an hour. Yes. I mean, this is rough stuff, but it was, there we were. But it made you who you are. Yeah, I know, it's a struggle, but... Did yeah. you have, do you have siblings? I have a sister and we're very close, but she, because um, she was a little older, so going into the American high school, even though it was a very good high school, is giant high school with a lot of meanness oh, and things. Shocking. And she, yes. we were coming from this little town in Brazil in the mountains. So um, she was really shocked by the culture. Uh, there was none of these things of mean girls, all these like weird, like they just didn't have any of that in, in this like, in Brazil, yeah. No, they didn't. Um, yeah. So so she actually worked at CVS on in the summer, bought her ticket back to Brazil. <laughs> it went back? Oh, wow. <laughs> and lived with How like... How old was she? 14? 15? <gasps> and she went back? She went back for like a vacation and then didn't come back. Basically, she stayed with kind of family friends, you know what I mean? With my dad a bit, but he wasn't near the school. Yeah. Because she really... Um, it was a tough transition. It was too rough for her. It was. Like, I can't imagine how rough it was for your mom to, to see all of that happening, feeling powerless. Can you imagine? So it was like terrible. No, I, I, yeah. I can't. <laughs> because we, we adopted... I told you we have two kids. We adopted them. And my son was 10 when we brought him in. And, and my daughter was 8. And it was already so different. And I was so scared that they wouldn't adapt and like, if they wanted to go back and if I failed them as a mom and I have means like I am a very different situation my like becoming a parent was very well planned and everything structured I'm older I was a I was a mother with like I, was, I think I was 37 when we adopted them so it's a very different situation and I was terrified I can all imagine your mom she um she's a fighter you know in a way because definitely from the you know what she probably thought her life would be like to what the reality she hadn't worked you know so she had to learn you know the American like hello may I help you but that's like a big transition wait she didn't speak English she did because she's no she Irish. did because she was in Cambridge yeah. yeah so so that's so the English we didn't have that issue but in Brazil you know it's like a very different life like we had uh you know wealth yes, I mean different. yeah we're very much we had that she she was um in you know Vera Soto in Ipanema <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> with a chauffeur you know so this yeah. is like a very big difference it's a drastic change drastic change and um driven a lot my dad had made some bets that uh you know on around the energy and oil or Mm -hmm. or real estate and the Mm -hmm. oil prices went up in brazil and basically just was like a wipeout so you know uh that's kind of what happened um so it was really like from a geo thing so in a funny enough that i ended up down now fast forward going to school to think international policy because um, you know, international, the macro world, even though the world is much more globalized now, I mean, like really mm-hmm. globalized, God knows what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the last 75 years, we're going from a very globalized world. But in that context, for me, where I was in situation in Brazil, it was actually very negative. Some of the macro shocks, um, you know, they put Brazil in a real tough situation and we were impacted specifically. So mm-hmm. to go from that then to Newton, Massachusetts, oh my God, what a stretch. And I had a best friend I was so lucky to make a best friend who had similar had run from Lebanon from a war like literally I later in life went with her to Lebanon 
And there was like, a, she showed me like the bullets and the bombs, you know, in the building. <gasps> and it was one of those. So wait, you have a friend, that's, you've been to Lebanon. I'm half I Lebanese. I was going to ask you because you look Lebanese. I was going to ask yes, you. Yeah. I'm half Lebanese. My mom was born in Lebanon and, and their family went to Brazil when she was little, bec- like running from war and whatnot. So yeah, I'm, oh. I'm, I'm like a hundred percent mixed because I'm 50% Lebanese and on my father's side and Brazilian side, they are Portuguese mainly. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so very mixed. Oh, okay. Up, uh, so there yeah. we have more connection there because then I yeah. ended up like later, fast forward, going a lot to Lebanon. And um, yeah, yeah. Even when I've there was uh, no, uh, you couldn't even buy a ticket. There was no diplomatic anything. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was like, still war. I went in the 90s, in the early 90s. It was still a war, I think, going on. I know. It's like, you know. Uh, but I had her as a best friend. She lived. Uh-huh. She came very similar. What was her name? Christian, the last name of her dad was Badran, uh, but mm-hmm. the mom's last name, oh my God, Zakak. They had originally mm-hmm. been from um, Alexandria in Egypt and flown mm-hmm. there because Christian, at the time that things started not to be so good, they went to Lebanon and mm-hmm. then had to go from Lebanon to the United States. So the whole family, it's wild, right? The United States is a place of immigrants. People need to understand that. No matter what you say, no matter like anywhere you look. We need to build the yeah. bridge, not the wall. I don't yeah. even know, yeah. you know. But it's I a, know. you know, it's a funky time now with all this stuff going on. So she, so, but Christian was a force because she, you know, had very much that, um, personality that you see in that area, you know, whether if you're mm-hmm. even looking Lebanon or Israel, you see strong women, women with a yeah. voice, passion, a lot yeah. of passion. And so she also helped me because I think I was very shy. So she and she was very, you know, like is going to figure it out, that type of thing. So together, uh, we really were the only ones really in a similar situation um, mm-hmm. and for. And so it was really critical to have her. And I think if you have one best friend, you're kind of like, yes, kind of you're it, set. you know, it's yeah, kind of it. a good one, yeah, you know, it takes. And later in life, so fast forward, I quickly I, I had always a good intuition with um, with numbers and interest rates. <laughs> <laughs> that's great you can only understand that coming from brazil because it doesn't make any sense anywhere else okay yeah. okay yeah. okay because there was so much calculations happening <laughs> on a daily basis with hyperinflation the inflation. yeah inflation i don't think people understand like they talk about inflation i say i remember vividly when i was little that like for example like i was planning my birthday present whatever it was and i know that's very privileged and whatnot but i remember like okay if i want to buy today let's say a ball or whatever it is tomorrow that ball it's not going to be the price tomorrow it's going to be more it was crazy it was a day by day thing I remember that like because I always worked too not because I had to I always like had this entrepreneurship kind of mentality so I always work even though my parents always like had the means and, and whatnot but I remember that collecting the money saving the money to buy something but I had to like extrapolate and think what it would be and the inflation was just crazy crazy like doubling tripling the price like yeah yeah so I I was very like attuned to that and my dad would teach me a lot so I had a lot of intuition not Mm -hmm. formally trained so pretty quickly I actually just fast forwarding um I kind of had like two things I was very interested in already probably at around 20 years old on one Mm -hmm. hand was social justice and like power structures and 
um, you know, all of that world. And then I, I knew I could do something in finance. Like I knew I could mm-hmm. because I just was, mm-hmm. it was so intuitive, but I never thought of it. Like I always thought like, because I'd seen Brazil get a macroeconomic shock, get into debt, get into hyperinflation. And I was again, very aware of it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, no, like how can we, you know, a country can't get locked out of capital like that and locked out of, you know, the world, how how can it be better you know and inequality mm-hmm. in brazil also always hurt me it didn't happen really in newton massachusetts but in brazil it did so that drove a lot like everything i've done uh really but how were you so aware of all of that at 10 i mean that's the thing is um I think my dad, so there was like, you know, because we were in a good situation. So mm-hmm. basically, you know, again, my parents were older. They had moved to the mountains because my dad thought that being a billionaire was having clean air and clean water, mm-hmm. you know. So he was very mm-hmm. futuristic. And we had. Which like, it is. Yeah. yeah, and it is. But like, you know, at the time <laughs> was like, all right. Yeah, um, nobody was thinking about that. Right. There's no, um, you know, there's like until, you know, clean air, you know, frankly, it yeah. looks free. It's not yeah. free. Um, yeah. So. So, so he was always, uh, so I kind of had him and my mom, as very little, I'm saying, you know, um, mm-hmm. at home, actually, both of them. <laughs> and then life changed very sharply. But I think those formative years of mm-hmm. really like the nurture, um, it planted some things. And then just life itself, because I, it just was so not homogeneous for me. I was very unhoused all the time. So I just, the perspective, I, I couldn't help it. You know, I think anyone in my position would just like... I don't think so. I don't think anyone really? in your position could. I know. I, I, I don't think so. I think don't take it for granted because that perception, like not every person or every kid even has that perception. Oh, okay. So that's, yeah, we like, uh, and then I think Christian, my friend from Lebanon had it too. So together Mm -hmm. we amplified, you know, and then fast forward in life, I had like a pretty significant role in um, setting like currency and interest rate strategy for, for a bank. And I had a trouble with a boss or something. And I called her and she was like, oh, remember when we were 12 and every other kid was in camp? with our money to go to camp. So we looked for my dad in Africa with the international operator and we found him. <laughs> and that's how I started learning French. <laughs> Je cherche, you know. What? Yeah, we Wait, did. Wait, whose, pa- whose father was in Africa? So Christian, my friend from Lebanon, uh, her mom her in Lebanon was, was already single mom in Lebanon because her dad had left and gone to Africa. He was one of those Lebanese that go to Africa mm-hmm. and do very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. So he, but we didn't know where. And there was this thing called the international operator that I have no idea how we knew that even <laughs> existed. So in the summertime. <laughs> at 12 oh, wow. we're just calling the international operators to find him and we found him in abidjan how about that and oh this is crazy you <laughs> see so she that's always not... reminded me like you know who can do it like this is like so crazy yeah, you know so, so you I, can do it. <laughs> so you have the but it's very funny like you, you know like who knew so it's very um unusual circumstances already and I, even then you know you can see the globality i started to start to speak French because to talk to the operator, Christian's grandmother didn't speak English. So I started to learn French and a little bit of And Arabic remember, there's no her. internet at that point. No I internet. I just want to make it, yeah, I just want to make it clear because all of that is not like you had an app and you were learning on Duolingo how to oh, speak no. French. It's no. just like... 
It's like on the fly. So how many languages do you speak? Do you speak? At one point, I was like seven, but that's like everything is like bad, bad these days. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, English, Portuguese, Spanish, French. The rest is like forget about it, you know. So I would say like four, if that. <laughs> like, wow. Uh, but before I used to be able to have more. So, um, but this kind of, but all of these perspectives, you know, they gave me a lot of um, sense of social justice. Like this is not fair. I felt a lot of injustice. Like I felt it, you know, and I felt it for myself and for others. Um, and so how did you even find that? Because like social justice is not something that you uh, you want your kid to say, I want to work with social justice. That's not a well-defined, well, it is a well-defined profession, but it's not something that's in the ra radar, yeah, right? Yeah, you're, talking, yeah. you're thinking about being a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher. Social justice is not something that's like right there. It's uncommon. How do you go from... So I think there are some particular. So um, yes, and you're right. that that's So one time I saw in the New York Times an article about Newton, Massachusetts. This, it's a public high school I went to, and I actually wrote about the public high school, about um, how the girls felt incredible pressure to be perfect and to do social, um, like to do charity and social work too. So it was like great. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. So so this, um, there's definitely, uh, it's a very potentially like Massachusetts, uh, this thing of like working everyone, uh, you know, I wasn't the only one who worked. I just needed it maybe more mm -hmm. than others, but people mm -hmm. worked, you know, this thing of like the kids don't uh -huh. work that that wasn't usual. The kids worked um, uh -huh. at, a, at a principle. And the other thing is people did uh, social work. Like that concept was very, the con concept of giving back was pretty strong. And I thought the United States was like that. And I realized that is no, not true. No, that's very rare concept as well. Yeah. So I think it's very specific town in Massachusetts um, that, you know, that is a bit more with that. So the, the values matter. So I'm always thankful to my mother, you know, the zip code matters. It mm -hmm. really matters. It does. And it if does. we had moved to another place, not that zip code, I mean, you know, just that we had good public school. I mean, we suffered and everything, and mm -hmm. I I struggled a lot. But the zip code matters. You know what can yeah, I tell it you? Does. One one zip it code over matter. in a place mm -hmm. like the United States. Uh, yeah, which in has, LA, that's very clear. LA is very clear. Like you're driving through a very affluent neighborhood, and then like literally, you change one zip code, and you are in a very like precarious, shady area. And, and that just, will determine. So that that really matters. You can see because it determines whether the, the, the diabetes, divorce. I mean, mm -hmm. there's like all sorts of determinants, right? Yeah. So yeah. so that was a big thing. So I think culturally there, and then to go into liberal arts which again was a bit in conflict with my like need for like financial security it wasn't an obvious thing but again yeah exactly so it's a little weird it looks incompatible but again that's where a bit massachusetts it it's it's more reconciled you know you because mm -hmm. you see that that matters and there's a feedback loop of the importance to it's the only place i've gone to like cocktail party that they actually care what you're reading like really they do Really. Oh, wow. You know, like in New York City, it's like, you know, what performing arts really mattered. Yeah. You know? uh, mm -hmm. And uh, here in Silicon Valley, tech and environment mm -hmm. are pretty big. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of women's reproductive rights also. Is, is There's a community that cares. They mm -hmm. don't care really about the opera or anything. You know, like they're in books. Yeah, no. <laughs> 
I'm not even yeah. ready to walk into a house. There's no books, you know, because like so last century. Um, yeah, so no, right. <laughs> Paper, what is that? Yeah, so so I think, you know, being in a place that supported the humanities and in liberal arts was very good because then, you know, the Marxist uh, kind of academic concepts have impacted a lot the liberal arts framework. Mm -hmm. So English literature is very impacted, like looking socially you know, like understanding context, I think is a Marxist contribution. A lot of, you know, so like there's a lot of uh, like social class, uh, what mm -hmm. was happening in that moment awareness. And I, and I think that that may be to answer your question. <laughs> Ten minutes later. Uh, that no, maybe. I love it. I love it. This is what this podcast is about. Oh, okay, to learn good. about it. Yeah. So basically, I think that helped. Um, it helped me. Um, maybe I didn't know this word social justice. You're absolutely right. That came like much later. But I was already reading um, within the liberal arts framework. You know, you you end up reading uh, Cornell West. You bell hooks like people that are you know shaking things up a bit and um and so that want you to come out of your paradigm and have perspective mm -hmm. so i think already in that that are have a lot of critique of the institution so um so i so you know you already start to get that and i had a lot maybe to think about because i had a already a rich repertoire in my own life that i could mm -hmm. you know uh, and I, you know we didn't even say like being a woman i forgot even to mention yeah. that <laughs> yeah that's huge exactly that's like i even so forgot huge. right like <laughs> um but you know um so so what I always felt, so like I related in the narratives, you know, with the slaves, with the mutiny, with all of that stuff, like I mm -hmm. did. And I and I felt it was very real and both mentally and potentially in physical constraints. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, you guys have a lot of passion, like a lot of fervor to like break through. But it's interesting because at the same time, I still wanted to make it, you know, so I kind of didn't, I tried to not keep it as a chip on the shoulder too much. To sh mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's almost, it's impossible, right? I have, I have a huge chip on my shoulder. It's just so difficult. Um, it doesn't show mine as much. And that sometimes now as a CEO, Good. I think I'm being called to show it more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I almost trained myself not to go too much because I think it was like where I was hitting you know, it was like, well, that might, that, that technique might not, this just might not work. Uh, yeah, you come too strong. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? So yeah. I was like, yeah. have been learning. And then now, no, now I think it's, uh, everything's like clarity, you know, like, um, so, so, you know, you like learn different things. Um, and, but you were reading the New York Times, you said when you saw that article, what, how old were you when you did that? Because Oh, it was later. They wrote, I think it was around 2006. They were writing about the okay. high school I went to because, uh, and again, this just gives you the contrast, right? I was like the yeah. poorest kid, but in a really like affluent place where, uh -huh. um, and, and like a legit poor, you know, like we lived in the section mm -hmm. eight, like we didn't have a car, but the place was like super wealthy. So in like 2006, they were rebuilding the high school and it made the front page of the New York Times because it was like $300 mm -hmm. million. Dollars. Uh, you know, it was like something uh -huh. extraordinary. Oh, wow. it, you know, like um, there, there were like countries with that GDP. And, yeah. um, and you know, and even when I was there, like the media, I just, I had to work. So I didn't, I didn't probably take as much out of the high school, but 
And I did ballet also. I did do ballet, like almost like mm-hmm. perfect. Like I got paid for it. Mm-hmm. No matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, I did. That was my mother. God bless her. Like she pushed. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. she came from a very from an affluent like class in Ireland, so she had these ideals. You know, so again, mm-hmm. you know, everything. Um, there you go. Well, but if anything, it teaches a lot of discipline. Yes, yes, yes. Discipline. Which you need to. You need a lot to be an entrepreneur. So I think everything putting together is a perfect puzzle. Yeah, I mean, now it looks like it. <laughs> because look, you're doing everything, like you're pioneering, you're leading in a way that there's nothing, you're building a pathway, right? There's nothing, like nobody's doing what you That's guys right. are doing. There's no, So yeah. you need to be able to think outside of the box, to, you know, not fit into labels. You are a woman trying to break through business as a woman and you just know how it's possible. I think you don't, your brain sees no barriers because there were no barriers. Like you had so many barriers that you actually could go through that this is nothing. You know, this is just yeah. like finding the best way to get there. But actually, it's very perceptive of you because one of the things when people have asked me is I t- actually it was a, it was a, when I went in to do the Ph.D. work at Princeton. It was under Cornell West, actually, who I had read super poor that I didn't have the book. I used to photocopy. Mm-hmm. So I never even knew who he looked like until much later. And he's a very distinct guy, African-American uh-huh. with a big Afro. Um, and so so um, people thought it was a bit amazing that I was there. You know, it was like the ultimate ivory tower, like the ultimate, you know. And um, and one uh, really intelligent woman, she looked at me and she said, you know what's remarkable about you is you don't see the glass ceiling. You don't even, you don't even see it. And, and, and I then started to think, oh, yeah, I don't see it. And but you actually just now, Lila, like articulated it in a way that I don't know if anyone ever had, like kind of like the how, you know what I mean? The like, mm-hmm. how, like, why? Why didn't I see a glass ceiling? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but that just helps you. And, and I and, it's, and I think, you know, the world needs more of you because I think as women, we put so many like. There's so many labels and boxes and and ceilings that we need to break. And it's just, I see that my daughter, the way she interacts with the world and the way my son interacts with the world, it's so clear to me the difference. And all they have different is one is male, one is female. Like the way they interact in the same situation. And this to me has been eye opener, like eye opener. I I was always a strong woman and I likewise I I think sometimes I di- I never saw I always thought I could be anything and I just but I need to learn what you learned how you are I just I just you know break through the walls instead of opening the doors. <laughs> oh, but it's through a lot of um you know, it's uh it's a lot of pain to do you know. Yeah. I mean, basically I I think I felt I think well, no, I think kudos for you and maybe that's, you know, in some ways you had more support. I'm just saying, you know, because mm-hmm. maybe you feel you can. cuz I wonder, you know, cuz now as CEO, I am being called to go through more through like, you know, kind of the dragon energy Oh, I things. definitely I think I came from a very privileged background, completely different than yours. Like I um, those perceptions to me came um, way later in life. I, I was also very lucky because my mom always did charity work. So she involved us from like from little. Like we would have birthday parties in orphanages, like, you know, to mm. like help and to celebrate with all the kids that didn't have the same means. But I was wealthy. I grew up. I had horses. Like who has horses? And so, yeah, so like and my parents, <laughs> I know. And my parents were always, I always felt like I could do 
anything, like anything. And my parents had my back. And of course, I always put hard work. I always, I was always a hard worker, but I had opportunities. Yeah. Like I had opportunities right there for me. You know? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is which is different. Like you had to, yes, I worked because I wanted to. You work because you had to. I had to, and which it made is a, a very different. It's yeah. a different perspective. So, yeah. Um, sometimes I feel like <laughs> I feel I have. Um, how can I say that? My sometimes sometimes I think I need some more to be a little bit more humble because I think the way also that my parents did. I'm very independent. I'm very like I don't see distinguish. I just think. I don't see a distinguished line between people, like even the president and ho the Pope, whoever, like I see them as humans. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad because there's no filter. But um, see, I, I would say yeah. um, I think uh, don't go in that direction. No, no. Just go more. Just go more. Stronger. You, you see, yeah. I need mentors. Yeah. I need mentors yeah. like you because no. it's just, you know, that's such it's a not woman something thing. You look Have you heard home. a guy say, oh, I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to work on humility. <laughs> No, you're right. You're right. Ever, oh, ever. You're so right. You're so right. No, no, no. But how did so you you go to high school and then you decide to go to, well undergrad here, right, in the U.S. and then you yeah. go to the humanities and then you go study. No, social I, I justice. actually didn't graduate the the uh, college. Um, okay, because uh, I started. So my mom had been working like as a receptionist and she got a job at this place called Cambridge Energy, which was the most prestigious mm -hmm. kind of just energy consulting for the world. Um, and it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they had been advising all the geopolitical countries. And until today, you turn on CNN, that's the thing. You take any graduate school class about the topic. It's go you're going to read the book out of the company called The Prize. And um, they asked my mom, they needed, they were starting up the Latin America group because Brazil was privatizing to shore mm -hmm. money to pay off mm -hmm. debt. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. and, um, and they needed just some like some intern that could speak Portuguese type of thing. And my oh, wow. mom told me and I like called right away and I went in. The thing, the problem is they asked me, oh no, what economics had you taken? And I said, Marxist economics. <laughs> <laughs> the truth. I had not taken uh -huh. not one form of economics. Uh -huh. And um and the guy just by luck was like, Oh, that was my minor, you know, and these are all like all the interns were going to the Ivy Leagues right around, right? So like uh -huh. I was like, you know, from UMass is okay, but UMass Boston not so okay, you know. Uh -huh. So it was already like um and I remember they gave me an office with a computer and, and a phone that I could call International Unlimited. Uh -huh. And Paid me $18 an hour. And I thought, oh, my God, I hit the jackpot. <laughs> I'm rich. <laughs> and I was like, I'm never going back to UMass Boston. Like, why would I do that? You know, uh -huh. it's a big train of a train. There was always asbestos uh -huh. problems. Uh -huh. um, it was like a real, it was an upgrade of a community college because uh, it was really made for, for you know, kind of older adults, especially. I was like, and they pay me to do this? I was like, are you kidding me? I'm never <laughs> going back. So I didn't go back. Um and um and so I loved it and I loved it and I created all sorts of um you know there was no I mean so so it links to what I like kind of a bit of what the work we do now which is is a world of no data nobody mm -hmm. knew and this company was mm -hmm. a very like well positioned company so if the data existed they would know 
so uh-huh. they didn't know you know how much um like electricity installed in brazil for the next 15 mm-hmm. years they didn't know like there nobody knew product pricing or anything mm-hmm. so i called i would call the brazilian companies and pretend i'm like an engineer if i was talking to the economist like I like just made personas and these people had so much time. I don't know how. Which again is <laughs> is not a women's trait because uh, it's like impersonate someone and have the confidence to talk well, like that, that. It's not something. That's the 12 year old finding someone in Africa. You <laughs> See, know? in Africa. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, um, and I loved it. And the thing is, I would get data points that were very unique and mm-hmm. um I was then the first intern of this company to travel abroad to present some of the data because it just didn't exist. And I remember I didn't know how to do Excel and people had to teach me and I like stayed up all wow. night. And yeah, um, but I did already at that point contribution uh-huh. to like, like, a, you know, and, 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 you know, look at the world, right? Like it was like oil uh-huh. and energy that crushed Brazil, like... <laughs> <laughs> and there I am. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it wasn't yeah. like I'm, you know, was like, oh, looking to apply. No, I had no idea. And it was by a hair that they took me because it was on paper, uh-huh. not too clear. So uh-huh. essentially, uh, yeah, once I got in there and then they were so tied to Harvard, which because they were like almost part of the Harvard campus at Harvard Business School, there was a uh, Brazilian or, or Latin American conference. So they were like, Christina, why don't you go? Here it is. You know, and these things, this is the craziness about America. It's like, because in Brazil, this would just never happen. In America, there's all these free things. Like, I know. All over. Yes. Like I'm next yes. to Stanford now and I feel terrible. Yeah. I never go there because it's like a world and it's not obvious information, but I know the best concerts, I mean, pre-COVID were happening at the concert hall. I just, they're mm-hmm. probably like $10, you know, $17. Yeah. It's like, it's nothing to yeah, do. Is is the country of opportunities. That's yeah. ha- exactly very right. It's very yeah. different. And everything, Christina, even like parks, you know, like where you can take your kids here. I can take my kids in California to any park. It's, well, free. I mean, we pay taxes. But point is, there are climbing walls in these parks. There are all of this is like beautiful, well-maintained. I'm like, I was like, in Brazil, this would never, yeah. ever happen. Yeah. Ever happen. So essentially, I was basically, uh, I once I realized, oh my God, like so this conference was free and like it's not like they yeah. knew who's a harvard business school student who's a harvard uh-huh. student they didn't know they didn't care and i walk in and actually um right there this brazilian um that now is you know pretty prominent in the world spoke and i was so confused i was like how is he brazilian like he just didn't sound like it like it, it messed me uh-huh. up a little bit um this guy jorge paulo lemon and i uh-huh. was like uh, so I went up to him after and I was like, you know, can I have your card? And it was his last card. So I took it and I called like two days later and he's like, oh, you know, when you're in Brazil, come by. He had a bank at the time. Come by my bank. And I was like, oh, OK, I'll be there Thursday. <laughs> I had no money. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. What? Wait, which bank? Garantia. <laughs> Garantia. Yeah. That he's got okay. Brahma. I mean, this is probably like for your podcast gonna be too Brazilian, but unless you want to do a Brazilian version. But um yeah, he bought wow. Brahma and Lojas Americanas and now he owns like Heinz and Burger King and you know, all this stuff with Warren Buffett, you know, he's like the top. But at the time yes. he's a Brazilian guy, you know, who who done well, but he had actually he was uh, I think his bank was 
bankrupt technically so um uh-huh. so it was a weird time and so he said on the phone he picked up the phone actually so that was something and i said he's like kind of like that laddie that conversation okay you know uh, when you come to uh-huh. brazil come by i uh-huh. was like oh okay i'll be there thursday <laughs> <laughs> i had no idea no money no idea where i would stay i don't know if i'd ever been in sao paulo let's just start there Wait, that, wait, you were not going to Brazil? You were like, you decided oh, to go because of that? I made it up on the that. fly. Yeah, on the spot, on the call. On the spot, on the call. Right <gasps> there and there. I and know, how old are you at that time? Uh, I think 21. 21. I had no idea how am I gonna, like... Okay, so you fly to Brazil. No, so hold on. Then I had to, like... Then it's like... And he's like, okay, let me check my schedule. He's a efficient guy. So he, like, always knew his schedule. So he's like, okay, at this time, at this office here, Faria Lima, you know, come to this thing. I was like, I've never <laughs> been to Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo, for those uh-huh. for the audience. Yeah, it's like podcast. New York. Yeah, I yeah. mean, maybe more. It's like a huge yeah. city. I don't know. There's yeah. 20 million people. And no, like, I think, yeah, I think it might be LA. Yeah, yeah like it's like massive. LA. So um, to just come up with that, it. you know, it was like out of uh, the moon. So I was like, but then, you know, it's so interesting how momentum and community and for those that are more spiritual would say spirit comes behind you because Look at this. Now I'm coming around to my sister, to friends and saying, guys, I have a meeting with this, you know, top notch person. I don't have money. Everybody's like, okay, let's, you know, hundred dollars. <laughs> so I like, can't yeah. believe it. So communicating yeah. together so you could buy the ticket. So I could buy the ticket. And then my oh, friends, man, my awesome. friends who I really was, you know, I'm close to actually also Lebanese descent, but Brazilian like you, mm-hmm. um, wasn't even in Brazil, but she's like, oh, but you know, just stay with my mom. And the mom was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, of course stay here. But then she felt uncomfortable because the Bolshoi Ballet was going to Brazil for the first time and she didn't have a ticket for me. Me. And it was like mega f- big deal, right? And uh-huh. uh, and I was like, oh no, don't worry, you know, I just need like a bag. Yeah, yeah. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. And lo and behold, she felt so bad. She like found a way. This over, to you know, buy this is like Monday, movie. okay? So the, like yeah. the whole thing is like yeah. that week. She found a way to get me a ticket. So then I arrived. So I, for the day before, so I arrived in Sao Paulo. Okay, found my way. Have this gorgeous place to stay. Thank you. Thanks to my friend. And her mom and her mom get has a ticket. So then fast forward the next morning, I go to my meeting and I'm like, oh, yes. And I went to see the Bolshoi Ballet last night. I mean, this guy, I don't know if till today he knows how much I hustled. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, like what I, I did. I'm like, yes, I went to the Bolshoi Ballet. You oh, know, because like, that's what I do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I like, travel to watch the, right. I follow the Bolshoi around. You know, so like, um, and then, uh, yeah. And so, uh, but fast forward just to show you these pivotal moments. Um, he helps, but sponsor. you put yourself, but you put yourself in that situation. You, I understand you had the opportunity to go and again, opportunity. You went to that conference that was free and everything, but like you went there, you stood up and walked to the guy that was lecturing, which is not common. And you asked for the card and you took action. You got the card and you actually did something with it, which is again not normal. I, what well, is she saying? Normal, not common. And then you came up with that and. It's so funny because I'm so like that too. Like I, 
it's like my husband sometimes I go half an hour later I come with he was like how how, how come all of this happening half an hour I was like oh yeah I just did this and he's like Lila you were like you I mean, you just went upstairs and came back and then you have all this plan and but anyway oh we should partner um no that's yes, great, that's sure. amazing um I mean that's the thing I call it um I mean I say it kind of funny but I'm like the ultimate crasher and I kind of like it that's the crazy part you know what I mean? It is. Like, but then like, what happened? So you went there. What was? What were you thinking? Like uh, now you get this. What did oh, you want to oh, get then, out of then it? Then I like you know I didn't know I didn't know I knew kind of this guy. You know he's something special in Brazil. But but at this conference, <laughs> mind you, there was like everyone of everyone top top. You know at the time. Yeah yeah yeah. At the yeah. time it wasn't gonna be clear at all. Just by the way that he would become uh-huh. such a massive force. Um, you know, there was these people from Mexico, very famous. And I did actually even talk to most of them, but nobody made an imp- impress. Like he really impressed, like he made an impression uh-huh. to me because he, the way he held himself on stage and how he spoke, it, it just, I couldn't, I couldn't connect who, who is he? Like in the sense uh-huh. of like, there was some sense of excellence that was transmitted right then and there that I was uh-huh. very drawn to. Um, and so, and I wouldn't even say it's charisma, it was gravitas, but in a different way. And so, and then, and then, you know, those, you know, three days I had to learn, of course, everything, um, which I did, you know, called everybody I knew, figured out. And I learned he had been a Wilbington tennis player, you know, like a serious tennis Mm -hmm. player. Athlete. Um, yeah. So very, so unusual Swiss background, Brazil. I talked to people who had interviewed or worked for him, you know, through friend of friends, people Uh uh and they're like, oh, they like sports, sporty people. So I think I might've said, oh yeah, I do all these sports which at the time I was not uh, oh my gosh <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love it you know I just made some but let me tell you so fast forward his foundation that sponsors a lot of Brazil Brazilians in their higher education actually uh helped fund me for my higher education so you know it's uh you know it's like these things like I full I was, circle and also, you know, think of relationships really long term. And I don't know, like, I definitely had that intuition, not just with mm-hmm. him, but even, you know, think my friend, like, Christian from Lebanon, like, I'm still really close to her. Um, uh-huh. You know, the friend that helped me actually to so that I could get the Bolshoi, her name's Carolina, like, I'm actually really close to her, too. So mm-hmm. um, the long term relationship thinking um and as a vector for 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 how you move forward, I guess, especially when it's not very maybe institutionalized, you know, you're just mm-hmm. charting the way you'd be impressed how, um, you know, these communities, uh, you know, they can really help you. So somehow I triggered that. It takes a village. So then you you go there and then you meet with him. And then, of course, you impress him somehow. And then he helps fund your education. And what, I mean, that's like later, you then know, later in you life. Go? Um, I mm-hmm. mean, so I it um, it was I had already been working on a job offer from that internship to work in mm-hmm. finance Uh to do in Bank Boston, another like prominent player in Brazil and to do the currency strategy. But I mil- but I actually used that I was going to meet with him for my interview. You know, like I... Because <laughs> you're like this business person that has a meeting with someone important in Brazil. <laughs> I must be important, you know. So I kind of made it up. I mean, in a way. Um, and then I, I, you know, and I got a break, you know, if like Cambridge Energy was the first break. Then the next was this next job that I... I had a voice, actually. I had to speak in front of, like, 
hundreds of people in the morning uh, and I had to write every morning. I published by 7 a.m. So I was at work at 5 a.m. Oh, wow. And I did the uh, macro, the macro scenario, um, mind you, you know, with very little tech, like, you know, formal education in that space. But uh, it was so easy and intuitive in some ways for me. And Mm -hmm. then I understood that the, you know, the political part at the time and was so huge that if you could kind of navigate through that, it was already a very, it was very meaningful and also deliver the information to an audience, um, mostly American and European corporates at the time that had stakes in Brazil uh, in a way that was succinct. So I always mm-hmm. understood everything should be one page. Conclusion yeah. first, conclusion first, one page. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's yeah, that's definitely the opposite of Brazilian. Uh, yeah. But then, how would do you? How do you go from the world of finances and all of that, and you start working like with women, women's health, and get involved in all these issues? And so I didn't see things so disconnected as I think in a way that they are, um, because uh-huh. also I always did finance in service of developing countries and service of big projects and, you know, waterworks and agriculture. So I, I didn't, I wasn't doing, I don't know, AT&T, you know what I mean? Like it was, mm-hmm. I mean, AT&T actually mm-hmm. infrastructure too, but it was very much into country development. And, you know, you can't work in that and not at some point hit health and health mm-hmm. inequity. Um, and frankly, it also translates to women's health inequality and rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you just can't not hit that somehow. Um, but specifically in the finance role of country, you know, like looking at the macro, um, especially for Latin America, I would go a lot to Washington, D.C., uh, to meet the leaders of countries, you know, they do all these receptions and things like that. And one time I sat next to this really old guy. I mean, he must have been the oldest guy in the room. He was already mm-hmm. 93. And um, I was kind of amazed, like, who is he? What's he doing here? And he had been ambassador to Brazil under Kennedy. And he had grown up in Margaret Sanger's house. So he knew, you know, reproductive rights. So he on one hand knew the whole, you know, macroeconomics, things like that. But he also uh, had firsthand and he told me flat out and this guy had even met Hitler. Okay. He told me Margaret Sanger was no, like the number one most, um, impressive person he ever met and most Mm -hmm. charismatic leader he ever met. And he was so impressed by her that he actually brought Planned Parenthood to Brazil. And, um, and so I started to be aware and whatnot, and then kind of tangentially and concurrently learning, you know, health inequity and how could I, in the same mission of how can I bring the funds, the thinking, the technology, yes. the advancements to places that have high unmet needs. Um, and that's what we do today in a way. And I used to say I'm going to work with the marginalized and the voiceless. I didn't think dogs at the moment. <laughs> Will be the <laughs> but you know what you say also watch what you say because it can yes. really happen you be know? careful what we wish for because it might become true yeah yeah so so you start you start working with that and you, somehow you end up in the boards of all like of those important issues yeah so so basically in um so folks who were so a lot so like you know, when you think Wall Street, think like greedy and things like that. But people who work actually in the countries, you know, like Brazil, Ecuador, you know, all these mm-hmm. kind of, you know, Africa, 
A lot of them, it's an intersection of folks that have been thinking really, you know, country development. And this is one avenue. You go work either UN, State Department, or you work, you know, directly with trying to usher funds. Some people go World Bank, some people go private sector. So I went more private sector. Um, and essentially, you know, you start to bring together. So a lot of folks do a lot of uh you know, kind of charity balls and things like for the countries mm-hmm. we're working in, let's raise mm-hmm. Wall Street money, like closing the yeah. gap. So there's probably more people yeah. with that mindset than maybe in other areas of the industry. So again, I never worked in that hardcore, you know, uh, it was always, um, we were funding a lot of clean technology in energy, you know, there was mm-hmm. a progressive feeling about it that, um, and so actually, but it was through at one of the banks, Credit Suisse, and their uh, support for a foundation called the Empower, so like emerging markets, like empowering emerging markets. And mm-hmm. it ended up being that most of the grants were for women. And so from that, yeah. Because and what year is that? So this is like 2006 about, uh, okay. you know, and so um, most of the grants were for women uh, and those, again, minorities, but a lot of it for girls Um and then I got on a committee for a ball that we did every year. And also the folks would come pitch, you know, to get a chunk of the, the funds raised. And there were significant funds raised at these balls and these mm-hmm. events. So it was kind of beautiful. Uh-huh. You know, everybody wants a party and then yeah. you raise. Like we would get to each charity 100K, which, um, oh, wow. you know, just That's from great. a night is great. And like five charities get that. That's like, it's significant. Yes. Um, yeah, very. So, so I started to be known in that space. And I guess that uh, Planned Parenthood for the whole Western Hemisphere is actually headed out of New York City. And they they were looking for kind of a different voice to be involved. Um, and I was introduced originally to help introduce them to somebody. But this woman who was just fabulous, Brazilian, who knew Carmen Barroso, uh, who helped really, I think, bring women's studies in Latin America and Brazil, had had a very prominent role, role at the MacArthur Foundation, and she was the head. And uh, we met each other, and um, I mean, I understood in two seconds. I was like, yeah, no, no, we got to focus on the adolescent girls. Like, that's like sacred yes. stuff, uh, right? They got to stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not yeah. drop out. And um, and then on the other hand, there was also a lot of related to population momentum um, and like even thinking environmentally. And so, I mean, I just like intuitively, I loved it. And I thought, you have a great brand. Like, this is this is great. And so they invited me and I was so excited. It was like my first formal board. I actually felt I made it really. It was one of the first times I felt I made it was going to that board. It was like, oh my God, you give me chills. Yeah. It really was. I made it because it's like, you know, I do, I do have to say our meeting was at the Rockefeller estate with a Picasso, (laughs) uh, <laughs> tapestry. I mean, I just love this stuff. But they do it actually for nonprofits. If you have a nonprofit uh-huh. ever and you want a meeting uh-huh. once COVID, you know, um, they actually, it's a beautiful estate. So they only host, they only allow you to use it if you are a nonprofit doing, you know, significant uh-huh. impact. So it's a beautiful thing, but it's kind of stuff I just, you know, I couldn't make this up. And how old are you at that time? I don't, if you don't yeah. want to share your age, it's fine. Um, it's just, I'm trying to understand because you look so young. And then oh, I'm 44 now. Out- so I'm like trying to think like, how old was I? Um, so by this time, I joined the board, I believe 2008 was my first meeting. 
So seventy five. Okay. Uh, so you I? around thirty. So you around like thirty, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, something like that. Because um, most of my twenties, I was a lot like I did some education, but then I worked, and then I went back to graduate school, which I ended up getting my degrees, like the graduate and the undergrad, all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then went back to work and kind of focused a bit on these um, social movements. And yeah, no, once you start doing that stuff, I mean, you can't not. And are you still connected? Are you still Up until very very recently, I was still serving on a committee uh, Mm -hmm. for resource um, allocation. But things have gotten pretty hectic. You know, the little kids Mm -hmm. and the company is like Mm -hmm. a lot. So I've, you know... But, um, I mean, I think they're just fantastic and amazing leadership. And, um, you know, the it's 30 million health services per year. Imagine that. I know. I was, I, was, I was reading their website. It's beautiful. And, like, everything they claim and everything they do, it's, um, you know, for people that don't know, visit their pages. But they're talking about improving the life, the quality of life. Um, they campaign for sexual and reproductive health and rights um, through... Um, services, especially for poor and vulnerable people. And just to give you people some perspective, like at least in Brazil, um, and I think might be majority of South America, but I need to check, like abortion is illegal and the majority of the country is Catholic and there's a whole taboo around it. And it, it's Brazil yeah. is not progressive in that regard. And that leads to all this unplanned parenthoods in poor communities and that's just a cycle there is no way out for a woman on that situation because if yeah. you are oh adolescent God. and you are on the streets and then you get pregnant and then after pregnancy is another one you cannot get out of it so that's There's no so way a poverty for you to get trap. out of it yeah it's a poverty yeah, trap it's a poverty trap and the the orphanage and that and then people like Again, like and then again, I'm not against or in favor. Well, let me. I'm, I'm in favor of choice. I'm not telling people to move forward with an abortion or not. There's an individual choice, but you need, you must have a choice. You have yeah. to have a choice because the orphanages in Brazil are filled with kids from that situation. They're kids of kids. Yes, you know, there's no way out. The difference between you know me and the biological mom that was in that situation and had those kids and couldn't take care of them and the kids were taken from her, Mm. it's because of that. It's it's my zip code where I was born. It has Mm. nothing to do with my character or anything like that. When when we went through the adoption process, it was so eye-opening to me because now you're reading real reports of real people with like social security numbers, which is the CPF in Brazil. And you're reading like their names and their ages and what happened to them. I went into this process like, oh, which mother would do that? This is an absurd. And when you start reading, you go like, oh, this was a kid when she had a kid. And a lot of times through abuse, through like, oh, it's like so, yes, so sad. No, it's um, highly preventable, highly Highly. And and like Melinda Gates' book, I don't know if you read it, The Moment of Lift. It was another book that was like, mm. what? And you you have to have it really. It's like amazing. Like she's talking about it. She's talking exactly about that. How they started in Africa with the projects with vaccination, right? They really wanted to uh, provide vaccinations and bring vaccines to all communities and their kids. And then they, they travel and they had the moms bringing the kids for vaccination. The moms started asking, where is my vaccine? And they were referring to um, birth control. Because, again, it's a very macho society. They couldn't get the pills because their husbands wouldn't accept that. So they wanted the injection that lasts a month or whatever, 
how much it lasts. So the husband couldn't see that they were actually uh, using preventative methods. And, and so that's how they start seeing that to actually save those kids, they had to save the moms. Like they had to, and, and Planned Parenthood was the key for that because the moms didn't have a way out. They had kids after kid after, after kid and they were weak and they, you know, poverty and there was no way out. And yeah, so no, that's, um, that's really, so first of all, I want to tell you that I've um, spent time a bit with Melinda Gates and I have, I have, I have, I have, yep, I have at the Gates Foundation and I actually, and at Davos, and I actually advocated, so I don't know if you're aware, um, but, and I don't know what's the status now, but say around 2010 or so, Brazil was seen as middle income and graduated programs across the world. So there was no funding for any of this kind of, uh, any program in Brazil because it was seen as middle income. And I was like trying to explain to them, it might net look middle income, but it's, you have to understand inequality. You know, the mm -hmm. top quintile of Brazil yeah. is like Switzerland. The bottom is like Haiti. So no, you can't graduate Brazil. So I actually got not enough, not like in a hostile fight, but kind of in a fight. Like, <laughs> like I was like, Melinda, like you can't do that. Um, Brazil needs this. Like, and so she said, I'll tell you what, um, we can't do it because we're, you know, Africa, Asia mostly focused, but why don't you bring me the top Brazilians? And I will get them to do it. And so guess what I did? Remember back a little bit, that story of that guy that I met at Harvard Business School? I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. I brought him and his wife to meet Bill Gates to talk about this. <laughs> I introduced. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that's so to show you life, you know what I mean? And like, um, yeah, but even Melinda Gates, I... Uh, I really advocated because um, Brazil, countries like that get very, but you are correct. Most of Latin America, abortion is illegal. Yeah. Um, it was remarkable, the work and advocacy in Mexico that the Planned Parenthood Mexican called MexFam uh, did uh, in the district of uh, the capital of Mexico, in Mexico City. They were able to move the laws and liberalize and it's like they had like a flooding. So it's like such an unmet need. And then there's been other countries that have gone forward. Some go forward, some go back. I mean, it's like crazy. Um, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, impact now, not just from the Catholic Church, but actually from other extreme, um, right wing, like, you know, kind of conservative groups, uh, that mm -hmm. are more global. Yeah. Even. And with the present now. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually even, even more in some ways. It's gotten like worst. And just insane misunderstanding. You know, folks really think you say abortion, they think you're trying to like force abortion on people. Like, absolutely yes. not. The With, places yes. where abortions yes. are supported usually don't have many of them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, and I was surprised even in the campaign of Marina Silva, which I was very supportive of, yeah. but we did meet her vice president and I talked to him about this and I was kind of shocked that their party line was not no abortion yeah oh, so it's wow. pretty profound it's even very cool people it is very profound even very cool and the guy's a doctor uh and very like well educated like i was kind of shocked how it, it it's so engraved that's so engraved in brazil that's so deep so rooted it's just like it doesn't like it, it you know he yeah, said to I, me, I shouldn't he be said surprised. he said um i'm happy i'm born i was like 
it's like such an ignorant response. I don't even know where to begin oh. with that. Like, like again, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, choice. Well, how do you even respond to that? I was like, it's yes. a choice. And he's like, and I'm happy my grandkids are born too. I was like. And again, uh, it, it, like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, you know, is like what she says, you know, like women, they belong to the places where the decisions are being made. Like not men. Like yeah, it, it shouldn't be that women are, are the exception when those rules are being made, when those things are happening, even though there are women that think like that too. But. It just seems, it just shows like we need to be where the change is so we can act on it. Like, it's just incredible. We, we need to achieve like through equality, um, when the men share the power so we can also be there when those things are being decided. It's incredible. Yeah. The, um, um, you know, like some people have aversion to the name, like word feminism. I'm like, oh my God, it's not enough. Like we need something stronger. What do you like? You know what I mean? It's such a, I cannot needed... tell you like how many friends I already lost and family members that I don't, they don't talk to me anymore because they think that, um, like, because I'm a feminist and I don't know. And the, the view that they have of a feminist is just about equality. I just want to have the same, choices right I mean, the same yeah, rights and everything yeah, it's just yeah. it, but they, it, but in brazil that's not a thing right in brazil that's not and not just in brazil this is a global yeah. issue that's the thing it about is a women's issue. rights it cuts through yeah. race yeah. class yeah. uh zip code yeah. uh it's it's really yeah. everywhere so we have to come together i mean that's really the key thing and frankly i've also found that and kind of been amazed a bit in veterinary medicine to be honest it's, it's actually a, yeah, been it's remarkable a very sexist, to me. Remarkable it's a very in the United States, profession. and I've seen you know uh, some like pretty strong patriarchy and paternalism. Yeah. I gotta tell yes. you, you know, there's a yes. place to shake up. I'll tell you, and when it does, it's gonna be magical because it's so. Many I want to be part of this change, and it's and so many women yeah. and intelligent. Sixty-one percent are women. Yeah. Right? 61% of women, and we're making 18% less. Mm. So you see what I mean? So I think there's a lot uh, to do there, I got to tell you. Yeah. My observations. I know. Let's shake up. I will shake up. like, And that's why, again, when I started Vet Ahead, this part of me was so, so strong. And I was like, how can I integrate? And again, like you, I, just thinking, like, it seems so disconnected, feminism, empowering, um, and, you know, gender equality, um, race equality because I happen my kids are black and so I see that now less than 2% of um, the veterinarians are African American in the United States less than 2% wow. and so um, yes there's just no opportunity in the hospital I work there's no black veterinarian and we are 60 doctors 60 and so I was like, how can I bring that to vet ahead? I have this is part of me, such a huge part of me. I have to, but how, how, what does it have to do with like zoo medicine? Like, how, what does it have to do? Because vet ahead's like teaching and online courses. And I was like, okay, the podcasts and not only that, but the way we hire, what we hire, what we show in our website, you know, the people, the pictures that you look is all like great. Like it's crafted to that. If you look like the people that we show and it's, it's just huge. And, and so I was like, I'm going to start with the podcast and I'm, meeting like amazing people like you and that's opening my horizon so much and I do so much want to make the change because I leave that mm -hmm. um and and during my residency and that happens all the time like the sexism and the like abuse that I went through and I quit my residency because of that and like other women came after me and that keeps happening and nothing happens to the person that is causing all of that. And it's a man, of course. It's just... 
So I find this really shocking. And I worked in Wall Street and I'm from Brazil. So I'm just telling you, like, it's not in your head. It's bad. Yeah. If I tell you the stories and one day we went off when we can get together and drink wine. For sure. But you'll be like, what? And, and yeah. in what we, like a, a strong-minded woman like me, allowing that to happen, but it happens in small amounts. Mm. And when you see you under all that wave uh, to get out. And anyway, it's, you know, using power to have that, you know, it's such a small field. It's so difficult to get in the field, the zoological medicine field. It's really, really hard. We are only 200 in the world, <gasps> 200 specialists in the entire planet. I'm the only South American. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, when you have an opportunity, they can do whatever they want to do with you because it's like it's so rare to get the opportunity that people stay. They go through like mm. horrible situations, toxic environments because that's what they need to do to become one. And so when I finally became one, I was like, what are we doing? We need to share this knowledge, why are we having this small club? And that's how I was like, you know, the best way, the most democratic way is to put on the internet. Yeah. So having online courses, bringing the specialists to teach and this new wave of specialists, they are younger women. They want the same. They want the same thing, and they all came on board. So I have like huge names on VetAhead. It's because people that think like me, and they want to make a change, and they went through it. But it will be you will be surprised. Like so many people that go through it, and they say, you know, I went through it. Now you'd need to do it. Like you need to go through it because I ate cheats. So oh my god, this is a 1980s. It's such a mentality. It's like 1980s. I know. It's like people wake up. Yeah. No. So no. it makes me like in seeing what you're doing, what you've done is so much more that could have, like think about and it's just inspiring so your your girls are gonna be so lucky to grow um <laughs> with you and see that and and not not see a ceiling themselves not see anything you know? i hope the so sky's the limit i hope so or, I mean, we not even on. the sky if they want to be astronauts you know the universe is the limit but community really does matter and you know here where we live i feel blessed to have uh some really amazing women like literally almost as neighbors so i think I think it just really matters to share that and come like we need to we need to neutralize some of that. I don't know. Last century. I think these yeah. paradigms are ready to be like to go, you know, and I think yeah. maybe we can use yeah. this like reset to accelerate yeah. it more. Uh, we have to You're be right. very, very crafty and find the opportunities. Um, and this will be also an interesting approach to cut through you know, a lot of uncertainty happening. And so mm -hmm. in order to go through it, if you can see the mission or, you know, something that moves the needle, I think it's really important. And I think it can happen now. Yes, I will definitely work towards that. <laughs> uh, well, it's such a pleasure, Lila. Um, Thank you so much. This was so enlightening. It was great. Thank you so much. Yeah. For that. Where can people find you and find about Phytocure? And so phytocure.com. Uh, write mm -hmm. to us. We have chat right there. We'll come back to mm -hmm. you. Uh, come learn mm -hmm. more. Um, we, you know, we're basically, we're doing a lot of webinars for the veterinary community ourselves and very much in the concept of, you know, in a response to COVID. And mm -hmm. frankly, in a response to this new normal is really, yeah. is really the thing. So we brought all the way from actually the zoo space, uh, zoonosis, uh, Dr. Bob Cook to talk about, you know, his experience with Ebola. We've brought, um, other luminary veterinarians, like from public sector, uh, Dr. Michael Blackwell, who was, uh, the assistant U.S. Surgeon General. 
and headed mm-hmm. the FDA CVM or had a leadership position there and dean of University of Tennessee vet school. So kind of thinking the policy. And then we've been bringing the real experts uh, for veterinary oncology, which is specifically our space. Um, Dr. Cheryl London, Dr. Barb Kitchell, who's actually a VCA. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing yeah. women. I got to tell you yeah. that. Oh, yeah. my great. God. Yeah. Like, yeah. incredible. Incredible. Mm-hmm. So there's some good. So I think, you know, we have to be tactical and strategic how to amplify more the voices, right? To neutralize some of those restraints that are threatened and yeah. are trying to hold on. Um but, you know, I'm, I'm a world person. And when I look at this, I can tell you, this is like, it's like ready, you know, it's just going to be like one portion is going to be, you know. Um, so I hope, but, you know, um, you are right that I think a lot of the power, when I think of the leadership that controls capital, is still quite masculine, actually, that control. Um, yeah, in, less than 2% of women. Yeah. Venture capital. Yeah. So... You know, that needs to be shaken up a bit because that will help empower. But even just raising the voices of the everyday um, veterinarian, like that already, I think uh, they're suffering. They're suffering. There's like, you know, they're really, really intelligent women. They've gone to very, uh, really brilliant, gone to advanced degrees, you know, even to get into vet school. I mean, all of that. So we need to, you know, I mean, we can go top down or we can go bottoms up, you know, and one by yeah. one, you know, really empower, like they have to connect to somewhere that they they have to understand that their voice really matters. And in fact, it's not just it matters, it's critical. It's critical. Yeah. So it is critical. You're right. They have to jump into the opportunity to have to, to you know what I mean, to influence and speak, not... Uh, Let's start the movement. Let's start the movement, Christina. I'm Let's in. do it. We, we got a I few sisters. We have a, we have a few yeah. sisters already. I can tell you some names, at least in, in they, my space. I'm being serious. That you know some enough of them. Later, okay, enough later. Let's make this happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because it has to happen. Let's take action. And yeah. I'm I'm all for it. I can break some walls. Yeah. While you guys Rene- some renegotiate doors. <laughs> these debt issues. The debt burdens are very high for student debt. That's like yes. uh, you know, needs to be renegotiated like at the government yeah. level. There's a little yeah. lobby. So, you know, there's a few yeah. things. Uh let's you know. let's put our heads together. Okay. Can find a solution. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you guys. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I will see you on the next one. Bye bye. Bye. The honest mistake. Well, there were no mistakes today. How could we have any mistakes with Christina? She's like a walking encyclopedia or for today's millennials, Wikipedia. She's a walking Wikipedia. I don't know about you, but I really felt like, what? Sometimes she was just like vomiting the names of all these influential people and economists and, you know, professors and intellectuals and I was like I feel so humble I feel like I need to study and read so much Christine is so brilliant so intelligent and what a culture what a life perspective I was the whole time I was like "Uh uh-huh uh-huh but in my mind I was like I need to Google this. I need to Google this. She's incredible. Isn't she? Didn't you feel like she was so incredible? So 
of course, I have no mistakes to correct. And I'm just bringing some curiosities here about what she said. And of course, I researched the people she mentioned. And what a rich life. That's all I have to say. She mentioned atopus as a word. It comes from atopy from the Greek, atopia. It means placeness, unclassifiable, of high originality. As she mentioned during the podcast, and Socrates was often called atopus. Can I say something funny here? I wanted to laugh during the episode, but we were talking about something serious, so I didn't. But my husband sometimes has the tendency to correct my English during a fight. <laughs> Not the wisest move, I have to say, but one time he decided to quote Socrates <laughs> during a fight <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I said, I was like, it was like, uh, well, you can imagine, imagine your significant other quoting Socrates during a fight. <laughs> it was just like, well, so when she brought up Socrates, I, I every time someone, someone brings up Socrates, I can't help but think about that. Anyway, as I was saying, today I felt like I was talking to a walking Wikipedia. She mentioned some economists, um, like from memory and... <laughs> like someone that really studied them, because she did. She mentioned Jeffrey David Sachs, and I looked it up. He's an American economist. He's liberal, academic, public policy analyst, and he's the former director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, where he holds the title of university professor. He is known as one of the world's leading experts of, on economic development and the fight against poverty. Awesome. Then she talked about Paul Anthony Salmonesson. That's great. I can't even pronounce his name. <laughs> he was also an American economist. And she said, oh, I think he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah, bingo, bingo, he did. Uh, he was the first American to win the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. And when he was awarded the prize in, a prize in 1970, um, he was believed to have done more than any other contemporary economist to raise the level of scientific analysis and economic theory. What an amazing accomplishment. Um, he was often called the father of modern economics, and the New York Times considered him to be the foremost academic economist of the 20th century. Amazing. Then she went to talk about some philosophers and professors and activists like Dr. Cornel West. Dr. Cornel West is a professor, philosopher, author, and activist. He's a preeminent and provocative democratic intellectual. He is the professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University, and he holds the title of professor emeritus at Princeton University. He has also taught at Union Theological Seminary, Yale, Harvard, and the University of Paris. Cornel West graduated magna cum laude from Harvard in three years and obtained his MA and PhD in philosophy at Princeton. Impressive, but it doesn't stop there. He has written 20 books. He has edited 13. He is best known for his classics, Race Matters, 
Democracy Matters, and for his memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. And his most recent book, Black Prophetic Fire, offers an unflinching look at 19th and 20th century African-American leaders and their visionary legacies. I have to read that one. This is going to be, I hope there is an audiobook. Uh, now that I don't love reading from books, which I do. However, I don't have time to sit and read. And my commute to work is about an hour, an hour and a half. So I might just use that time to learn. So I love listening to audiobooks. I listen to one or two audiobooks per month at least um, as well as several podcasts. So this is going to be my next one, The Black Prophetic Fire. I would definitely read that one or listen to that one. Then she talked about Bell Hooks, um, is an acclaimed intellectual feminist theorist, cultural critic, artist, and writer. Hooks has authored over three dozen books and has published works that span several genres, including cultural criticism, personal memoirs, poetry collections, children's books. I definitely need to look it up children's books, huh? And her writings cover topics of gender, race, class, spirituality, teaching, and the significance of media and contemporary culture. Okay, I figure Bear Hooks is pretty famous, but I have never read anything that she wrote, so I definitely, I'm definitely going to check it out. See, I'm telling you, I'm learning so much with this podcast. Then she mentioned George, uh, George Paulo Lemon, um, that she literally scheduled a meeting with him out of nowhere and went to Brazil and all the hustle. He's a Brazilian billionaire, investment banker. He's a businessman with dual Brazilian and Swiss citizenship. In 2019, he was ranked 30th richest in the world by Forbes. No, not 30th, 37th richest. So 37. Wow. Estimated net worth of $24.6 billion. Then she also mentioned Dr. Carmen Barroso, which she is the regional director of International Planned Parenthood Federation for the Western Hemisphere region. And then last but not least, and very important, we were talking about abortion and poverty and and all of that. Then I mentioned I wasn't sure how many countries in Latin America or South America. I, I said South America and she brought up Latin America, um, which countries abortion was legal or illegal. So I found out and it's pretty much what we were saying. More than 97% of women um, of reproductive age in Latin America and the Caribbean live in countries with restrictive abortion laws. Um, the abortion, it's not permitted for any reason in six countries in Latin America. Nine others allow it almost exclusively exclusively to save the woman's life, with only some offering limited exceptions for rape. That's the case of Brazil, Chile, Mexico, and Panama. I know we say Mexico, yeah. and Chile, not Chile. I have to say, for Brazil at least, even in those cases, it's pretty complicated and very bureaucratic, involving an immense amount of paperwork, time, and lawyers to be conceived the right to have an abortion even if you raped or even if you, the woman's life is in danger 
it's pretty bad. And then um, other countries uh, such as um, Chile, Panama, and almost half of the states of Mexico, they also offer uh, exceptions if there is grave fetal anem anomaly. Uh, fewer than 3% um, of the region's women's lives in countries where abortion is broadly legal. Uh, what am I saying? Fewer than 3% of the region's where women leave, in, it's in countries where abortion is broadly legal. And that is permitted either without restrictions as to a reason or socioeconomic ground. And those are Cuba, Guyana, Puerto Rico, and Uruguay. Pretty bad not to have a choice, huh? Pretty bad. It is not to have a choice, I think, is one of, is not having freedom, right? Is you really not truly free if you don't have a choice. So with that, I hope you stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, and enjoy the next podcast. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>